asked me if I would share with y'all today, as he's in North Carolina doing a wedding, and I said, if it's between sharing with you all and doing the wedding, I'm in. I'm in. I feel like I got the better end of that deal. Uh, you know, the wedding, they're going to remember forever. You guys will forget this after lunch. So even if I don't do well, it's all right. It's, it's not uh, kept for posterity. I love the gospel. I love the Bible. I love God's story with mankind. Um, I've loved studying it. It's been a tremendous uh, thing for me in my life, but I have come to the realization that there's a, a bit of an issue with the Bible. And the issue is it's an improbable story. It's a story that's hard to wrap our minds around. Sometimes it's a story that's even hard to believe. But it's one of the ways that I know God wrote the story, not any man. Because if you wrote the story, it wouldn't look like this, right? If you wrote the story, we wouldn't have to get three quarters of the way into the book before we meet the main character, the guy it's all about. I wouldn't do that, right? I wouldn't write a story like that. You probably wouldn't write a story where the protagonist, the main character, the center of the story is born to a, a poor, unwed Jewish virgin, right? Because if you've passed middle school health, you know that's not possible. You wouldn't write a story like that. And you wouldn't write a story where the, the, the savior of the world, the guy who everything revolves around, he comes to earth and his birth announcement is this giant celestial uh, event where a star appears over the lowest of the low. To the people in society that are the most marginalized, the least trusted, the least respected uh, in, in Jesus' day, you probably wouldn't write the story that way, right? It'd be like if we wrote today and we said the star was going to appear above babes, babes, babes. That's not where we would put the star because that's not how you write a hero story. And if we wrote the story, we wouldn't have Jesus born to a humble, working-class, blue-collar father. And we wouldn't have him grow up in a family that doesn't believe in him. That's right, when you read the Gospels, you find out that Jesus' family, his very own brothers and sisters, they don't believe in him. In fact, they kind of mock him a little bit. John records it this way, he says, for no one, this is Jesus' brother speaking, they say, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. They're kind of goading him a little bit. They're poking at him. They say, well, if you do these things, show yourself to the world for not even his brothers believed in him. Even his family doubts him. That's rough. Mark records it this way. He says, then he went home, and the crowds gathered again so that they couldn't even eat. The crowds are pressing in on the house that Jesus is in. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. That's Jesus' own family. You wouldn't write a story like that. Neither would I. And then, even worse, Jesus' own words capture his sentiment when he says, when they took offense at him, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. If you've ever experienced the rejection of family, Experience the rejection of people who are supposed to love you and understand you, people close to you. Jesus faced that. 
Now, you and I probably wouldn't write a story that way because that doesn't sound very heroic. It doesn't sound like a hero story. But that's the story. And we wouldn't make it so that the whole story revolves around the hero being murdered by the very people he came to save. Because that's not very likely, is it? But that's the story. And then the whole story hinges on the hero being murdered by the people he came to save and raising himself from the dead. You wouldn't write a story like that because nobody would believe it if you or I wrote it. Doesn't make any sense. It's crazy. It's wild. It's improbable. But that's the story. And the craziest part is the story takes place Jesus raises from the dead. Historically, nobody doubts it. Nobody fights it. In fact, those who uh, crucified Jesus paid off the guards to say his body was stolen because they didn't have a better answer. If you and I wrote the story, we wouldn't have left the story in the hands of the 12 disciples. Because remember, Jesus chose 12 people. 12 guys that he did ministry with, he did life with, he, he taught and when he leaves the world, he leaves the story in their hands. But the problem is, these are 12 or 11, plus Matthias, who comes on in Acts. These are guys who are, are basically teenagers. So the story all hinges on 12 teenage boys. Yeah, you laugh because you know, right? You and I would never write a story like this. We would never write a story where the entire movement lives or dies with 12 Teenage boys, right? Because that's crazy. Nobody would write a story like that. Now, the Bible gives us some uh, breadcrumbs to figure out who the disciples are. And I think it's very, very important because the whole story hinges on the disciples, right? Once Jesus ascends back into heaven, the movement is left to live or die with these 12 guys. So your picture of the disciples is probably one of some uh, uh, maybe middle-aged or even gray-bearded uh, men kind of following Jesus. They're pretty smart. They're pretty educated. That's kind of the picture we have. But that picture comes from Hollywood. It doesn't come from the Bible. In fact, the Bible paints a really different picture of the disciples. And it's really important that you understand it because that's who the story's left with. Okay. So one of the breadcrumbs that the story leaves us, we need a little bit of history to understand and, and figure out. And the history is this, that in Jesus' day, the way school worked was that at about six years old, about six to ten, we sent a student, a child, to what they called Bet Sefer. So Bet just means house, and Sefer means the book, house of the book. And in that first kind of elementary school, we might call it, they learned all about the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and they memorized it so that when they were about 10 years old, they would have those first five books completely memorized. Remember when the uh, Proverbs, when they said, bind it on your heart? That's what they did. They committed God's word to memory. That was the beginning of Jewish education. And at about 10 years old, when they had committed the first five books, those who were, were pretty good students, well, they would go on to what we might call middle school or high school. And from 10 to 14, they would memorize the rest of the Jewish scriptures. Okay? So by about 14, they would have all the Jewish writings 
the Talmud and uh, the Mishnah and all the different Jewish scriptures and, um, and scriptural interpretations, they would have all that memorized. That was the Jewish education system. And at 14, when they were done, they would find a rabbi. And they would ask the rabbi, can I, can I be your mini-me? Can I follow you and be like you? Can I take your yoke upon me? Which is, can I be your student? And the best of the best, the best and the brightest, would be selected by these rabbis to follow after them and become the next generation of rabbis. Kind of like college. Make sense? So the problem is, where do we find the disciples? They're all plying a trade. Remember, Jesus finds James and John and Peter and Andrew in a boat fishing, plying their father's trade. What's Matthew doing? He's a tax collector, right? And Judas is a zealot. He's a grassroots insurrectionist. He's uh, one of those guys. They're all out doing work because they're not college material. That's what the Bible's telling us. They're average, ordinary guys. So, we know that they're not the best and the brightest. But we also know that they're young because there's another incident that happens, another breadcrumb in the gospel story. Jesus has this conversation with Peter. Now, what happens is Peter is, is basically uh, approached by the person who collects the tax in the temple. And the person says, well, Peter, doesn't your master pay the tax? Peter says, well, yeah, of course. He goes to Jesus and he says, do we pay the tax? Jesus says, well, is the tax collected by the son of the king or is it collected on the people the king rules over? That's basically the conversation. And uh, Jesus says, but so we don't offend them. Go fishing, Peter. The first fish you pull out, will have a shekel in its mouth. And this is the important part of the story. He says there will be a shekel in its mouth, enough to pay the tax for you and me. What about the other 11? Well, again, if we know a little bit about Jewish history, we know that in Jesus' day, the temple tax was only levied on a male 21 years and over. The others don't need the temple tax because they're not 21. They're teenagers. Peter's also the only one who's married. Now, in our day, that may not seem so weird. I have lots of single friends, but in Jesus' day, that's not how it worked. When you reached a certain age, we married you off. We, we kind of made an alliance with another family or sold you to the highest bidder. You didn't have to fall in love. You didn't have to uh, get on your phone and swipe left and swipe right to find somebody. We just... We just married you off. That's how it worked. So the fact that they're not married means they haven't reached that age. They're not there yet. So the Bible clearly shows us that these are, these are teenage boys. That's who the story's left with. And they're perfectly average, ordinary, everyday teenage boys. A lot like you and me. And in fact... They struggle with the same things we struggle with. These aren't superhuman, uh, super powerful, amazing theologians. These are people that struggle with everything that you and I struggle with. And in fact, there's this great story where they struggle with faith. 
They're in a boat. And if you remember from, from any of your Bible uh, lessons, if you remember that Jesus won, at one point feeds 5,000 people. And he feeds the 5,000 with basically a little boy's lunch. Okay, a couple of fish, a couple of loaves of bread. And he multiplies it and he feeds all these people. And there's more left over than he even started with. It's this amazing miracle. And it's important that we note that that comes right before the words immediately. In the book of Mark, he says, immediately they got in the boat. So they just witnessed this. They get in the boat. As they're going across the Sea of Galilee, a giant storm comes up. And as the storm comes up, the boat begins to flood. The waves are crashing over this boat. But Jesus, completely at peace, is asleep on a cushion in the back. Now the disciples, they're freaking out. Oh my gosh, we're going to drown, we're going to drown, we're going to drown. They run back and they finally, they wake up their master. They say, Jesus, don't you care that we're going to perish? How are you asleep? How are you at peace? We're going to perish. And Jesus wakes up and I can only guess from my reading that he gives them that look. Like really? The really look? And he gets up and you know what he does, right? You know the story? He, He rebukes the wind. And he speaks to the waves. And again, Mark uses the word, immediately there was a calm. And the disciples, they cower in the boat. And the best part is what they say to one another. Who then is this that the wind and the waves obey him? You know that story, right? Because the disciples struggle with their faith, just like you and me, they have these moments where they see miraculous, amazing things. They see God come through in ways only God can do. And they turn right around and they struggle to believe. They're just like you and me. And there's another incident that's, that's pretty crazy. You probably remember hearing about Peter walking on water. It's pretty legendary because who, who's ever done that, right? Right? Again, if you wrote this story, we wouldn't include something like this because nobody would believe you. But in the story, Peter, they are in the boat. It's in the middle of the night. The Bible says it's about the fourth watch, which is about the 3 to 6 a.m. time, so kind of the darkest, deepest part of the night. And they see this figure walking on the water. And so like you or I, they're scared. They think it's a ghost. But Jesus, sensing their fear, he calls out to them. He says, take heart, it is I. Don't be afraid, it's me. Don't worry, it's me. Peter, he's going to test it. If you know anything about the disciples, Peter's pretty rash. He's pretty brazen. He doesn't really think before he speaks. That's kind of classic Peter. Like he just sort of comes out. Peter says, well, if it's you then, command me to come to you. Sort of testing this, right? And so Jesus, I think, kind of nonchalant, goes, sure, come on. Because this is nothing for, for God, right? He says, sure, come on, Peter. So I give Peter credit. He gets out of the boat. Now, a lot of us would struggle with the first step, right? That would be the hard part, the first step over the rail. But he does. He gets out of the boat. And in fact, the story, if you read it carefully, he says he walked on the water and made it to Jesus. He didn't take a step and start to sink. He walked to Jesus. And then, that's the key in the story, and then he noticed the wind and the waves. And he began to fear 
and he began to sink. And sinking, he did what all of us would do. He cried out, Jesus, save me. He doubts and he cries out. And Jesus does what Jesus does for all of us. He grabs him by the hand and he pulls him back on top of the water. Peter struggles with fear. He's the head disciple. He's seen everything. He's in Jesus' inner circle of three. He's around for all the crazy miracles. And yet Peter has fear right in front of Jesus. He's just like you and me. He gets scared. In fact, they get so scared that if you remember in the story as it progresses, we get to the Garden of Gethsemane, and all the believers know, oh, that's the night. Anytime we bring up the Garden of Gethsemane, we're talking about the night Jesus is arrested. We're about to get to the really gory part, the part in the story that's hard to watch, right? It's the part where we kind of watch like this because we don't want to see it. We know what happens. All of them run. They leave him. All 12, they get scared, they run. They all desert Jesus in the garden. The guys Jesus is going to leave the story with, the guys who have to take the story forward, they run. And not only do they run, they hide. Now somehow they get from that night. And in that night, Peter's going to deny Jesus three times. He's going to say, I don't even know the guy. Not only are we not friends, I don't even know. We never even met. That's what Peter's going to say. That's fear, right? Peter's afraid. The disciples are afraid. They struggle with their faith just like you and me. They're just average, ordinary teenage boys who oftentimes don't get it. So we go through this story. There are so many instances where you're like, duh. And even they're like, what does that mean, Jesus? We don't even understand. Now, how do they go from that to dying as martyrs? History tells us Arrhenius, Josephus, a couple other uh, writers from the first century, guys who were only one or two generations removed from Jesus, okay? These are guys whose grandparents knew Jesus. I mean, they are close to the action. They say that the 11, except for John, died as martyrs. And Peter, kind of a, a main character in the story, Peter is reported to have been crucified upside down. He said he wasn't worthy to be crucified right side up like his Lord. How do you get from where they were to that? The only answer is the power of the gospel story. It went from something that they were surrounded with but didn't understand to something that transformed their life. They caught the power of the gospel message. That's the only explanation for how they go from being a bunch of confused, shaky, scared teenagers to bold witnesses of Jesus Christ that carry the story forward into what is eternity for you and I. And why did God choose them? I think it's because of this right here. Because God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you were in Christ Jesus, who became to us, and this is the key wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I think that's the answer, because the power of the gospel gripped their heart. That's what changed for them. Now, it's kind of cool. I'm going to go back just a couple of slides here. In Acts 4, there's this really interesting passage, and again, it's a breadcrumb that helps us understand the gospel story. And in Acts 4, we read, Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, this is the Sanhedrin that uh, Luke is writing about. The Sanhedrin's like the Jewish ruling party. So in, they were in front of the Senate. They were in front of the, the, all the people that mattered, that had power in the Jewish world. That's who they're in front of. And it says, and when those people saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been Jesus. That's the key. They had been with Jesus. They weren't chosen for their pedigree. They weren't chosen for anything other than their character. It wasn't their credentials. It was their character. That's why they were chosen. So they carry the story forward. They carry it forward, and 1 Corinthians shows us Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That is the essence of the gospel message. Jesus is righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He's the center of it all. And over the next several weeks, Rick and I are going to talk about what is the central, simple, story of the gospel message. What's the who, when, where, why of the gospel message? And I hope that for those of you who are, who are believers, who are veterans of the faith, I hope you'll be excited about it because you'll get a chance to hear the gospel in its simple, simple form. Something that you can take and share with others. Something that you can take out to your neighbors or family who maybe don't quite know the story. For those who are new to the gospel message, I hope it all makes sense when we're done. So that's what we're going to do the next couple of weeks. Talk about the gospel message. But the gospel message, whatever power is in that, was left with 12 ordinary, average teenage boys. They struggled with faith. They struggled with fear. They're just like you and me. They're exactly like us. And I think God planned it that way. Because we can't look at those guys and say, yeah, but if I was like them, then I would be a witness. Or then I would share. Or then I would be okay. They're just like you and me. God did something pretty cool too. Jesus, on his last night, before he was arrested, right before they go to the garden... He instituted what we call communion, a communal remembrance 
of his sacrifice. And again, it's not a part of the story you or I would ever think to write. If you know anything about communion, he talks about his body and his blood and how that sacrifice makes a way for us to be with the Lord. And in fact, that's what we're going to talk about next week is, is the why of the gospel. Why is it so important? Why is what Jesus did necessary? So as you go out, today in the back we have communion set up for you. You can grab that, take that with you, uh, share it with your family. You can do communion out in the courtyard or uh, in your car or at home, whatever uh, works for you, whatever you feel comfortable doing. But do it in remembrance of the gospel story. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this chance to gather. Thank you for the gospel story. Lord, thank you for a way to be right in your presence. Thank you for a way to return relationship with you. Lord, we pray that these things this week would sink into our hearts, that you would bring to remembrance and illuminate the truth of your word this week, that you would empower us and go before us, that we might be witnesses for all that we have seen. We might not shrink back in fear or doubt our faith, Lord, but that we might have a week of seeing you at work. We love you and we praise you, Lord, and we pray these things for the glory of your son, Jesus. Amen.